So when, um, when, I, when I read a passage like this in the scriptures, I think a lot about language. And I think about the way that language is used in the way that language shapes our thinking and our understanding. I think about the power that language has. For example, I, I recently uh, came across this, uh, this letter that, that somebody wrote into a newspaper and it gets kind of circulated around from, from time to time. And it's about this person sharing this quote that they learned when they were a child. And it, it, the quote is, knowledge is power and the right and the attributor the, the quote is attributed to Francis Bacon uh, but the person who wrote this letter in and it was about how words shape meaning and 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 how we think different things about stuff that we hear than what's intended this person when they heard it they thought as a child when their father told it to them that it was knowledge is power France is bacon, all right? So from time to time, they would throw it out there, like throw it out to a teacher and say it, hey, what does this mean? Knowledge is power and, and, and France is bacon. And they would explain it in all the, in, in 10 minutes, like this is what it means and this is what it is. And then the person would follow up and say, Francis Bacon, what about that part? Because you didn't say anything about that part. And they just respond, yes, Francis Bacon. And it wasn't until they saw it as an adult in print and saw that the quote ended after the word power and that it was attributed to Francis Bacon. And that, that just shows the incredible way that the way language is expressed and shown can alter our perception and our meanings of reality in things that are present and temporal and, and even things that, that try to point to bigger, more esoteric, or things that we would describe as eternal. And of course in church, you know, we, we talk about things of eternal nature all the time. And so it's incredibly important for us to be reflective and to think about the way that the language and the words that we use contribute to whatever we think about eternity, whatever we think about reality, and does that serve us well or not? Because language changes and it, and it evolves rapidly and we're looking at a book that has language frozen in time from 2000 plus years ago, translated multiple times in multiple ways, even from the spoken language of the day. And so it's very important for us to take time to think about, are, we, are our ideas coming from a misattributed uh, swine sort of relationship with a foreign country? Or are we really understanding uh, something that's beneficial and that's uplifting? Because a lot of times, Language is used not to point to the eternal, not to point to life, but to hinder and to restrict and to result in a form of death. And that's what we see here happening in this dialogue between this group of leaders called the Sadducees 
who Lonnie told that funny, funny joke when he preached a, a little while back. They were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And I haven't been able to read that passage without being tickled by that the past week. I laugh at my own jokes, so it really doesn't matter if anybody else does, just so you know, I, I have fun laughing at my own jokes. Amen, thank you. Oh, well, we got, we got a fellow, fellow dad joker over there. All right. So let's see what these Sadducees are about here. Let's start in, in verse 27 and, and see the way that they're using language and words and what the, what the product of that is. Because I don't know about you, but I want my language and the way that I speak and the way that I think the results of those things to produce more life and not death. So in verse 27, it says, some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. So I just wanna tell you a little bit about these guys, the Sadducees. They were kind of like, they were kind of like a, a, a mafia almost at this point in history. They, they had over the past two to three decades risen to this really uh, niche group of, of people who they had all the right bloodlines. They could trace, in fact, that's, that's the transliteration of Sadducee comes from the, the Hebrew name for the, for the uh, priests, the lineage of the priests. And, uh, and so they had all the right bloodlines. They were like pure, pure um, priests and, and king bloodlines. And they had gotten real cozied up with this thing called the Hellenistic culture of the day, this, this very humanistic um, culture. And so they had, they had a lot of influence uh, because of their bloodlines and they consolidated a lot of power. And they were really tight with this guy, King Herod, who was, was kind of like a puppet king. He was like put in place, he wasn't really in the lineage of, of the royal bloodline, but he was gonna kind of like work with Rome and work with all the other major political players and he was really good at it. And he built this really beautiful temple and he did all these flashy things. And the, the Sadducees were good with this whole relationship of power. And it says here, for our benefit, it says these Sadducees uh, they, they didn't believe in the resurrection, which is really important for this story because they had a very, um, they had a very constricted view of how and when God spoke. And people's, people who are in power, who want to amass and have more and more power always do. Even if it's just in a family unit, even if it's just a spouse to another spouse, or as great as the President of the United States, that people who want to restrict and control and oppress other people and continue to amass more power, always have a very narrow idea of how and when God spoke. And so the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection simply, or in part at least, one of the reasons they would say is because they believe that only the first five books of the Old Testament scriptures called the Pentateuch, uh, the Torah is, those first, is the name of the first five books, the Pentateuch is the whole Old Testament canon, they only believe those first five books were authoritative from God. And so they would say 
that there's no mention of a resurrection in those books, therefore there's no such thing as a resurrection. And if you're bored, don't worry, I'm not gonna start going real deep into all that stuff, but this is really actually important. It matters actually to your life and the way that you receive and hear things from people in power. Because, spoiler alert, the Sadducees don't care anything about whether the resurrection is real or not in this encounter with Jesus. What they care about is that Jesus is threatening their narrow view of how God could and would operate, which in turn is going to threaten their power and their ability to hold their people in an oppressive place. If they control the language, then they can control the power because they're controlling what people think and imagine about what God wants and what God is like. Does that make sense? So that's the position that they're asking this question from. They've got everything to lose. Verse 28, teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up her offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman, died childless. The second and the third married her. And in the same way, they, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her. So again, this question and the cynicism and skepticism behind it, it's not an honest inquiry that they're making to Jesus as a spiritual leader and teacher. They're not really concerned if Jesus has a really great answer for this. They're, they're narrowing the field, they're narrowing their imagination, and they're trying to show, they're trying to show from their point of view and their way of thinking why Jesus could be discredited, why what he has to say is not, and what he has done is not authoritative, should not be followed, and you should follow the Pharisees themselves. I've done this kind of thing before. I've shot holes in somebody else's argument, not because, not because I really thought there's no way that they could be right, but because I didn't want to think about what it would mean if they were because maybe there was something I didn't like about them, maybe it was something that I didn't like what they reminded me of, maybe it was even a subconscious thing, but I came into the discussion about the idea not with an honest wanting to hear and gain understanding and exchange ideas, but in order to find loopholes and ways to say, you're wrong and I want to discredit you so that my position in my place, whatever that might have been, is threatened. But I'm sure I'm the only one who's ever done anything like that. So, like all good cynicism, it's based on something that sounds really good. We believe the Torah are the authoritative words of God and the Torah doesn't talk about the resurrection, therefore, let me give you a scenario to show you why this isn't gonna work. It doesn't make sense, it's not logical. And I, this idea sounds kind of, kind of weird, but it actually has everything to do 
with an understanding of eternity for both parties here. Because this passage isn't about romantic love. Obviously not if you've got brothers and siblings like remarrying this, this same person. It, the, marriages for most of the world in most places and most times, probably even today, are arranged. And, and there's, there are certain ideas about why those marriages take place that are built around cultural significance and partnership and how well um, people might work together and, and do these, these kinds of things. And um, the, the passage that they're referring to comes from, where does it come from? The Sadducees. If they're referring to a passage, what part of the Bible does it come from? The Torah, the Torah. It comes from Deuteronomy 25, five and six, and I wanna read it to you, and it's on the screen too. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So the Sadducees are thinking, ah, we'll bring this up and we'll show like how the resurrection doesn't work with this passage. If we create this sort of asinine sort of idea where seven guys die in a row, right? And, and so then, okay, at the resurrection, everybody pops back up and it's like, okay, who's gonna be, who's gonna be married to this, this lady? And the interesting thing, or at least it's interesting to me here, is they're really contrasting one way of thinking about eternal life with another. And that first way is through progeny, through children, passing on your name through the, the people born from you. And so they're, they're saying, okay, so in the Torah where we believe God is speaking, there's a provision for eternal life and it's through having children. You get to continue your name and your line in that way. And if we mash that up with what you're talking about, Jesus, it doesn't make sense because of this skeptical uh, and, and cynical scenario that we are applying here. And I know you guys have never done that in argument. You've never just tried to shoot something down like that just by making a really ridiculous sort of scenario. But what if this happens? What if it happens like that? And here's what's going on here, guys. To bring it home real quick. Their imagination is only being applied insofar as it allows them to prove their position correct, to protect power in contrast to mercy and love. They wanna disprove Jesus because his position and his authority rests on an expansive, free, mercy, love, generosity, and kindness, and the the Sadducees are only engaging in their spiritual imagination to shrink down and to narrow and to avoid having to think about anything like that because it's threatening to them. And I don't know about you, but I've done this more times in my life than I could probably remember where I 
was scared. I was afraid that something might change. And I used spiritual platitudes or I used logic to say, well, that couldn't be true. That hopeful, beautiful thing couldn't be true because of this ridiculous scenario I'm presenting about why it would work or this strictly logical progression of things. And so I was willing to apply my imagination to logic and, and to present small arguments, but not hopeful, larger ones. Verse 34 says this, Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, children, since they are children of the resurrection. This answer from Jesus is actually, was actually super scary to me when I first heard it quoted. And it was the kind of question like, what happens when we die? What will things be like? What will me and my girlfriend still be together in eternity? You know, because we had the bracelet, we had the little necklace and we wrote in our, you know, in our um, cow patterned notebook, right? That forever. I was gonna say an example, but my wife's up in the nursery. She might listen to this later, so I'm just gonna leave the past girlfriend name out of there, you know. Uh, but I found looking at this passage again, it, it depends completely upon my imagination about what God is like and what God is doing and what God is up to. So the Sadducees say, hey, this idea of resurrection can't work. Here's why guy has, or woman has seven husbands, who's gonna be the husband. And he responds and says, actually, this whole scenario you're presented, I've gotta give you some new information about what this is like, what it could be like in the resurrection, in a new life, in a new paradigm. And The, the fundamental difference here is that Jesus is presenting a completely different way of thinking about how life will extend and move forward that the Sadducees could not see from where they believe God was speaking from. And yet God was speaking right there, right in front of them right in that very moment that God was speaking to them, but they said, that's not the way God talks. That's not the way God speaks. We have our idea of it. It's over here in the Torah, and that's how God speaks to us. So what is he saying? Listen to this, um, this uh, translation from the message of the same verses. Jesus said, Marriage is a major preoccupation here, but not there. Those who are included in the resurrection of the dead will no longer be concerned with marriage, nor, of course, with death. They will have better things to think about, if you can believe it. All ecstasies and intimacies then will be with God. 
So Jesus is presenting a whole new scenario and I, I can't really wrap my mind around it. I don't think I'm supposed to be able to, but the imagination there is that the intimacy and the connection and the relationship with God and with other people will be different. The need for children won't be the same because, well, we won't be dying anymore. So the idea of eternity is different in that context because life is continuing on uh, uh, unendingly. And, you know, we can't even conceive of the idea, first of all, of eternity. And I don't want to, I don't want to uh, belabor that part of the text right now because what he says next is so incredibly crucial to what I think the understanding, my understanding of this passage is these last several verses. So read with me in verse 37 through 40. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him, all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said teacher, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Do you know when Moses, what part of the Bible, just guess based on what we've been talking about, what part of the Bible Moses had an encounter with God at the burning bush? The Torah, the Torah, the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. So here Jesus is talking back about what the Sadducees deem as authoritative. He's given us a new picture of what it might look like in the resurrection. And then he goes back to the books that the Sadducees say, this is where God speaks. And he shows them a new way to see it, a new imagination to bring to that text. He says, at that time, Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. And my first thought is, I don't think that's what that passage meant, Jesus. It seems like you're kind of playing around with interpretation a little bit too. I don't think you would get an A in your seminary class if you use that. I heard, I heard this guy say that Jesus would flunk seminary before because he doesn't follow all the rules. But the interesting thing is he's taking this text this idea of God that the Sadducees believed this was where God speaks. It just so happens to align with all their ideas of power and their ability to hold things the way they want them and to be in charge of the things they wanna be in charge in. And he shows them a different way to look at it, a different way to read it, a different way to see the nature of God than they'd ever considered before. And for them, the point was totally lost because they weren't there to see a living, breathing divinity. They weren't there to expand their minds about the nature of God. They were there in their cynicism to apply their little logic and their little thinking of how things should be. And Jesus comes in and he applies these old ancient scriptures in which everything had been said and that could be said about them, and he breathes new life 
into them and says, hey, this part where your ancestors are named in the book of Exodus, I want you to think about the fact that God's saying he knows each one of these people and that to God, they are alive. So you're, you're sitting here talking about whose wife and whose husband's gonna be who, and you're trying to make these arguments. And here this passage ends with Jesus saying, to God, all are alive. And, and, it, and it makes me think, wow, this, this makes so much sense to where I have gotten to in my personal faith. It makes so much sense to me because I, I used to try to logic out these, some of these ideas of eternity. I used to think that there was one way to view the scriptures and it just so happened to align with certain types of power structures that are in place in the United States right now that this theological and political power just coincidentally lined up perfectly. And then I started to realize that I had a single perspective that just like I have, I have a history in, in the field of education, just like we learn about reading comprehension. Do you know what happens when somebody reads a book? Your imagination and all your past experiences have to combine with the words on the page in order to create a picture, which means that no text has ever been read the exact same way, not even by the same person. That if you were to read Exodus 3 as a 10-year-old, and then again as a 20-year-old, and then again as a 30-year-old, unless you had the voice of the Sadducees of the day in your mind, forcing the idea of what that meant into your brain, your experiences and your imagination would create a different possibility than the time that you had read it before. And so Jesus seems to breathe life into the language, whereas the Sadducees restrict it like lungs that can't breathe. And Jesus says, actually, this passage right here today, what it means for you, what you fail to see is that to God, all are alive. And so I think about my perspective. I live in this one single moment, as do you. And I can think about people who have died, and I can think about what, who might die in the future, including myself. But all I can interact with and all I can know is that the people who are here right now in front of me alive. But then Jesus gives us this perspective that God is simultaneously able to interact with everyone who had ever lived all at the same time. I, what does that thought do in, in your mind? Does your mind just shut down like, well, I can't take it, can't do that. In some ways, mine does. But I, I begin to think about today is All Saints Day. You think about the idea of sainthood. I begin to think about the, the great cloud of witnesses. I begin to think about some of the Catholic ideas of prayer and sainthood and those types of things. I begin to expand my imagination 
about what God could be like, about what could be happening in service to God. Sadducees don't like this. They want a dead language. They want a language that can only mean one thing, that can never be reinterpreted again as long as it serves power. They've got a dead Torah, and therefore they have a dead God. It's no wonder that they wanted to kill Jesus. And they did. They did it. Thinking about this passage and the importance of language and how Jesus uses the very scriptures that the Sadducees were trying to discredit him with to breathe new life and new meaning, new hope into the lives of the people of that time and in turn to us. I was thinking about famous authors and and well-known authors and how they have shaped my thinking over the years about reading, about language, about these types of things. And recently we lost one of the greats, Toni Morrison, novelist, essayist, editor, um, all of these types of things, the first uh, black American to win a Nobel Peace Prize in literature. And she wrote something about language in her speech, in her Nobel Peace Prize speech, that I wanna share with you because I think it's so prevalent to this contrast between the Sadducees and Jesus in this moment about how language is being used one in the service of death, the other in the service of life and the God of the living. So I'm gonna read it, there's quite a few sentences and then I'm gonna gonna hone in on on one part of it, but try try to follow along with me here. The systematic looting of language can be recognized by the tendency of its users to forgo its nuanced, complex, midwifery properties for menace and subjugation. So right there, the Sadducees are not innocently asking a question. They mean to use the language of the Torah for these purposes. They mean to dumb it down and to use it for subjugation, to oppress the author of life, Jesus. Oppressive language does more than represent violence. It is violence does more than represent the limits of knowledge, it limits knowledge. Whether it is obscuring state language or the Fox language of mindless media, whether it is the proud but calcified language of the academy or the commodity-driven language of science, whether it is the malign language of law without ethics, or language designed for the estrangement of minorities, hiding its racist plunder and its literary cheek. It must be rejected, altered, and exposed, exactly what Jesus is doing in this passage. It is the language that drinks blood, laps vulnerabilities, tucks its fascist boots under uh, crinolines of respectability and patriotism as it moves relentlessly toward the bottom line and the bottomed out mind. Sexist language, racist language, theistic language, all are typical of the policing languages of mastery, of master. 
and cannot, do not permit new knowledge or encourage the mutual exchange of ideas. The mutual exchange of ideas, the very thing that the Sadducees had no interest in when Jesus was there in front of them. Going back to part of this quote here, I know it was a lot to, to take in. It's very much worth reading. I was having a conversation last night and I was trying to get this idea across to somebody who had just finished a creative writing major. And I said, I just wish people would read more. I just wish, I feel so limited in preaching sermons and I, don't, I actually don't know how much everybody you know, reads in here. We've got a lending library down in Walker Hall, by the way. But I just wish people would read more in our culture. I wish Netflix wasn't so prevalent and things like that because there's something so magical that happens in our thinking and our imaginations when we read from these greats. So in this part right here, she says this, oppressive language does more than represent violence. It is violence does more than represent the limits of knowledge, it limits knowledge. Whether it is the malign language of law without ethics, that's what these Sadducees are trying to get at. It's not, in, it's not out there and plain to see, it's couched in the authority of God. This happens all the time in our culture, in our, in our language, whether it is the malign language of law without ethics or language designed for the estrangement of minorities, hiding its racist plunder in its literary cheek. It must be rejected, altered, and exposed. So Jesus, Jesus knows what these guys are up to. And so he exposes their cynicism, their small-mindedness, by giving them this key passage and showing the life and the breadth and the possibility there. Here's something I know. This is something I for sure know, that where we are in our imaginations about how good and loving God is and how deeply he knows and empathizes with us in the person of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Trinity our, our, our understanding is so much smaller than who God is. When we read the Bible, we bring our limitations to it. And this here, this passage here is a masterclass from the word made flesh. That's why they had to kill him. They wanted a dead word and he was literally the walking word of God that this is a masterclass in how God can expand our imaginations, that the God that you think you are serving right now is less loving, less knowing and empathetic, less powerful, less creative than the God who actually exists in the cosmos that can say to all, to me, God, all are alive. So when we, when we come to this text, we can come knowing, as Toni Morrison talks about this, this type of language that permits new knowledge or encourages the mutual exchange of ideas. Later in her speech, she says this, the vitality, the life of language 
lies in its ability to limb the actual, so it means describe, to limb the actual imagined and possible lives of its speakers, readers, writers. Its force, its felicity is in its reach toward the ineffable. That's what Jesus is doing here. The language points to things that ultimately cannot be described. What's it gonna be like in the resurrection? Well, it's gonna be different. You're gonna be kind of like angels and you're not gonna die. There's gonna be eternity, which you can't understand, but I'm trying to bring you into this concept. And there's a way that, that people are learning to think like this now because they're open to the accessibility of a bigger language around God. This preaching of this thing called the kingdom of heaven. Our, our limitation isn't in acquiring more facts. We don't, we don't need a bunch more facts. We don't need more systematic theologies. We've got enough of those. What we need is imagination. The same imagination that Jesus is bringing here to the text. The same imagination that allowed the writer of Hebrews to talk about this great cloud of witnesses for the God to whom all is alive. Um, just something real concrete as we, as we close this sermon. We're, we're in partnership with this organization called MICA, Memphis Interfaith Coalition for Action and Hope. And they're incredible at pinpointing ways in which language can affect our city to harm or to help. And there's an election on Tuesday and there's two things on that election, two amendments that are around the power of language. And the first one is, the, it's amendment one on the ballot, and it's about, uh, it's called the right to work. And I wanna, I wanna read a little bit to you about the history of these policies. The so-called right to work policies were drafted 80 years ago by racial segregationists who feared unions would lead to integration, racial integration, and smaller profits. In 1961, Dr. Martin Luther King stated, wherever right-to-work laws have been passed, wages are lowered, job opportunities are fewer, and there are no civil rights. So on Amendment 1, we have an opportunity to vote no again, uh, for right-to-work. I've got a handout on the back table um, that has more information about that. And I want to tell you about one more. Amendment 3 on the ballot this Tuesday is the option to keep, I'm not making this up, to keep or to get rid of slavery in the, USC, uh, in the Tennessee Constitution. Slavery is still in our Constitution. This is the power of restrictive and dead language. The language of the currency constitution reads that slavery and involuntary servitude, except as punishment for a crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted are forever prohibited by this state. The history of this language and the purpose of this was that after slavery ended in the United States, you could arrest particularly black men and that if they were arrested for a crime, say loitering, because they didn't have a job and nobody would give them a job, 
You could arrest them, throw them in prison, and guess what you could do? Make them a slave again. Language has the power to produce life, to produce a legacy. And that legacy could be good or it could be bad. I'm thankful, I'm thankful that no matter who walks to this text and interpret it, interprets this text of the scriptures here, that we have a masterclass right here in this passage and many other passages of Jesus saying, you have interpreted this to bring death, I'm interpreting the same to bring you life. You need a bigger imagination. Please pick those up and, and read on that, and I hope that you vote on Tuesday. Let's pray.